Jones, Australia's leading voice. G'day, I'm Jason Morrison. Good to be here for Alan Jones for just one more week. Alan is back with you next week. It's been a wild weekend. Uh, plenty of things going on and some great response to the program for the last few weeks. So thank you very much for that. And you can catch up on plenty of our stuff online and ADH TV or on, on social where we had a wild weekend with uh, plenty of comments on an interview we did about uh, Chris Bowen, who we'll talk a bit more about a little later in the program. We are in a strange country, aren't we? A country largely built on the back of immigration, but for some reason a country that's frightened to have a public debate about it. We don't like talking about it. We sort of can handle the truth about immigration, but Australians everywhere privately like to have an opinion on the subject, but for some reason our politicians don't want to go near it. How many people should come here? Where are they from? Who's right? Who's wrong for us? Where should the migrants even live? You hear it talked about all the time but not where it counts. Mainstream politicians are genuinely frightened of the topic, and God knows why. Bizarrely in Australian politics, it's been a no-go issue for both sides. Labor and the Liberals dance around this and cowardly waffle on about the subject. And anyone who speaks aggressively about immigration, passionately about it, is almost instantly committed to the corner as a redneck. A red-headed redneck, how about that? They don't even like the courage of their convictions to tell us the truth about what's going on. So they make decisions, but don't want to actually tell you what the plans are. And we are experiencing exactly that right now. Like this, this is Claire O'Neill, the Minister for Immigration, announcing earlier this year that record immigration was coming, <laughs> but she never actually said that. In fact, anything but. Have a listen. As of the end of 2023, the end of this year, all skilled temporary workers will have a pathway to permanent residency. This does not mean an expansion of our CAPT program. It does not mean more people. If populate or perish described Australia's challenge in the 1950s, skill up or sink is the reality that we face in the 2020s and beyond. It's always these lovely phrases. We get the populate or perish thing because, you know, that once, once upon a time worked, worked for Menzies. Uh, then we get the multiculturalism rich tapestry argument, which you hear from the Liberal Party all the time. She actually announced in that speech the opposite of reality. She announced it was going to be okay, but we we're going to do what we needed to do, but it wasn't going to be an all in. It's turned out to be an all in. You see, the more immigration thing, is electoral poison. They all know it. No one has ever won an election promising to bring more people in in, say, the last 40 years. And right now we are experiencing the greatest influx of people we have seen since the Second World War. The most people we've ever had at exactly the wrong time. You see, record immigration is not smart when you have a housing shortage, to state the obvious. Not enough places for people to live. Rents rising. Home prices going up and up and up and up. This is out today. Rental vacancies, the lowest ever. Let's have a look at that. 20 years of data. Follow the line along from 2025 all the way through to today. 
we cannot house the people we have here already. And the stupid idea is let's bring more in. We have a genuine crisis in Australia and no one in politics who wants to know or say anything about it. And no one wants to deal with another reality and that is we have a huge number of families, the working poor, the phrase is, it's a cheapening of the phrase. But there are families living in caravans, in tents, in grandparents' backyard. They cannot get or afford somewhere to live. And at the same time, the idiots in Canberra are bringing people in en masse. Take this last week. Channel 9 Brisbane told the story of a 78-year-old woman. She is living in her car in a Brisbane suburb, living there because there's nowhere else for her to go. Have a look at that. And the foil wind cover on the, on the windscreen to keep the heat out. And she had been living there for a month. She will rent until she dies because that is Australia now. And there is nowhere for her to go. And no one did anything about it until it popped up on TV. She was on the streets for a month. This was Channel 9 News. At 78, Susanna Tuxford should be enjoying her golden years. Instead, she spends each night sleeping alone with her little dog jammed in her car in a Beanley car park. I'm not used to it. Susanna has no family in Australia, the country she was born. She started working at 14, paid her taxes for more than 50 years. But after her retirement in 2014, her rent in aged care became too expensive. Now she can't afford to live, so her only option is the park. And when she contacted the federal government, she was told it is her only option. That just takes your breath away. She's, oh, there it is on the screen. She's paid tax all her life, worked all her life, contributed to the country and the national shame of this. It got two minutes on the news. It should have been headlines everywhere. But I guess the problem is the story is actually not that unique. It's a sadly common reality of Australia right now. And it will get worse because we are bringing people in to homes that we don't have. And I doubt Claire O'Neill, the immigration minister in Canberra, would even be capable of joining the dots between her actions and this disgrace in our country. Now, I'm not saying it's her fault. But I'm not saying it's not. What is she doing to stop situations like this happening? Nothing at all. She's pumping more people in. 500,000 additional people coming to Australia since the start of the year. 500,000, record immigration. Make that 750, maybe even 800,000 by this time next year. And if you just think about it for a moment, the numbers are staggering. And no one ever wants to talk about the numbers of people coming, let alone where they're coming from, if they're appropriate for this country. Another topic for another day, but not off bounds here. 12,000 extra people flying into Sydney and Melbourne airports every week, here to stay. 2,000 more people every day. Think about it. And where are they going to live? Do we have the infrastructure for them? Will we cope? The government itself is already warning of blackouts because we don't have enough power. And dams and water supply and congested roads. We could go on and on because simply Australia is not ready for this. And Australians weren't warned or even asked if this was okay. Perhaps in good times, we can cope with immigration numbers. 
But in tough times, this is utter stupidity. Well, Shane Oliver is the chief economist at the AMP, and he's one of the unlikely heroes of this debate. He was by far the first to point out this record immigration, I'll call it by stealth, some time ago, and now everyone's onto it. It's all over the papers today. Quite some time back, Shane very quietly did the sums from all the available statistics and calculated what I say is the truth. And the government was at the time saying, oh, no, 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 4,000, 400,000 immigration, no more. He found it was more than 500 and something thousand. Look, the argument about the numbers aside, Shane Oliver makes the point that Australia's annual immigration intake needs to actually shrink because of our housing dilemma. And of course, today it's the popular viewpoint. He's with us. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. Must be, must be nice to know in your profession that uh, you've not just got it right, but now everyone's on your side with this argument. It's a, it's a really important point. It certainly is. Look, I think for some time now, we've been having a, an issue with the housing shortfall in Australia. Lots of issues behind that. We tend to blame negative gearing and capital gains tax discounts and all those sorts of things. But at its core is a shortfall of supply, the supply of new homes relative to demand, which ultimately is driven by population growth. And of course, uh, we had a bit of relief through the pandemic as immigration levels slumped. Now, of course, they've rebounded to levels that uh, are record levels, in fact, way beyond what we were seeing prior to the pandemic. And lo and behold, uh, we've got house prices surging again and almost ha house prices, despite very uh, a surge in interest rates, house prices are almost at record levels. Uh, so you really do have to look at what's driving the underlying demand here, what's driving the tight rental market and what's driving um, the, the relative expensive nature of Australian housing. Uh, and obviously demographic demand or population growth is a big factor behind that. You use this phrase, sort of not being able to hide from reality. I actually wonder in many respects, and you've been around for long enough to have seen all of this, if, if government didn't know almost that its plans had got away from itself because you had one hand very loudly talking about the need for housing. We had the Albanese plan where they're gonna borrow money and stick it in a bank account and use the interest on in the bank account to pay for extra mm. homes. And, and this incredible commitment to building a ridiculous number of homes, which I don't think we ever had the ability to do. I, I almost got the feeling that that was like a thought bubble idea that, that sprung out as a result of them saying, oh my God, look what we've done. Yeah, look, I think they went into the election last year with a commitment to do something about housing affordability. Uh, yeah, this was before this this rapid rebound in immigration levels, uh, but obviously there was an issue at the time. And so rightly, they identified supply as a factor and thought about what they could do. Um, and obviously the Housing Australia Fund, I think it's called, and a focus on um, affordable, social and affordable housing, I, I think were worthy objectives. And of course, uh, starting last year, they got together with the states, came up with commitments to build a certain amount over a certain number of years. I think initially 1 million over five years, now 1.2 million over five years. Uh, so that is the sort of thing you need to do. You need to recognise there's a supply issue here. You need to start supplying more homes. But if at the same time, you're ramping up the level of natural demand, the number of households in Australia is getting ramped up 
by higher than normal immigration levels, then to some degree you're chasing your tail. Uh, that's even before you, you get into debates about whether we can actually meet those commitments in terms of supply. <laughs> yeah. um, like, like, for example, in the last year, we, we've only completed like, 175,000 dwellings. Uh, the most we got to uh, through the, uh, the the unit building boom was something like 220,000 dwellings, and that was in one year. Uh, and over the last uh, the last five years, we've been below 200,000 dwellings. And, of course, the government wants to build 240,000 dwellings. So there's big challenges on that front. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think th- they're thinking about doing the right stuff, but if you don't control the underlying demand that's coming through at the same time, then you are just chasing your tail. You don't get to the bottom of the problem. Yeah, um, kind of a homemade problem, this one. Uh, Let's have a look at this graph. Now, you'll know it. I don't know if you can see it at your end, but it's one of your graphs. We've got the blue line, which shows the uh, population increase, and you can see that big surge, and then you can see the red line, dwelling completions, and the grey area in between. So without us getting into kind of a... (laughs) I respectfully say this, a boring economic analysis of it. Just explain to me what that grey area in between is. What is that in reality? (laughs) Well, the grey area in between is a shortfall. Uh, If you look at that period up until about 2005, virtually the period after the early 90s recession, immigration levels were contained at something like 150,000 net migration a year. Uh, We built um, a level of uh, homes that was probably satisfactory to meet that demand. And then starting around 2005, this was the mining boom years, suddenly the immigration levels jumped up from circa 150,000. I think it was, in fact, just above 100,000. We jump up to around 260,000 dwellings per annum. So you can see that jump up starting around 2006, 2007. And of course, that was the initial period of shortfall that we ran up until the, I I guess, the pandemic uh, period. There's a bit of a perk up there in completions, the red line, and that was the unit building boom that we had, uh, you may recall, uh, in the years prior to the pandemic, and that helped us a little bit. Uh, Then we had a bit of relief uh, through the pandemic years because, as you can see, the blue line, uh, uh, population growth collapsed Mm. as immigration levels went to zero, in fact, went backwards for a while. Now we're we're running well above that again. And obviously that, that spike there that I've got in there for the um, number towards the end, which is 2022-2023, that spike is it's about 640,000 people, um, of which Jeez. about 500,000 is a record level of immigration. Now, I'm assuming that thereafter it goes back to what the budget uh, back in May was uh, projecting, which is about uh, 415,000 immigrants this financial year, falling to 260,000 immigrants the year after. But obviously, there's a question mark about that. But basically, the, as the gap widened between the two, as population growth went well in excess of completions, we then ran into housing supply problems and chronically expensive housing. People were still able to get into housing because we had ever lower interest rates. And so you could borrow more and more. Um, but you were lumbered with a much higher level of debt. Now, of course, that's starting to unravel as well because, as we all know, interest rates have been going up since May last year, and so those ultra-low interest rates are starting to become a thing of the past. So homeowners are getting a double whammy here. You know, Not only do they have to borrow big to get into the property market, but they've now got to pay much higher interest rates, and that's See, obviously creating a lot of pain. I guess the bit I worry about is, is how do we fix this? Can we fix it? I mean, have we started something here that's going to take us many years to untangle? 
Well, to be honest with you, I think it can be fixed. It, it is complicated and this is something the government is, I think, working through. Uh, initially, they, they set each year a target for permanent arrivals, people immigrating to Australia. Uh, but over and above that, there's long-term arrivals, particularly students, people who come here for several mm. years at a time, and they get added to the population number as well. Right now, we're seeing a surge in student numbers. Um, but historically, once those students arrive here, many of them end up staying and they're, they're good people for Australia. And of course, um, and that, that to some degree helps the economy. Um, but yeah, the reality is whether it's student or permanent arrivals, you're ending up with a higher number because they have, this, I think, from my understanding of it, they should have less control over the student numbers mm. that come in. And so you've ended up with this, this blowout and the numbers coming in well above uh, what has been projected. If you go back to the March budget last year, before the last election, the government was projecting 180,000 net migration into this country in the 2022-2023 financial year. Looks like those numbers are now going to be 500,000. So Jeez. way, way above wow. um, what was projected just in March last year. Mm. Uh, and th that's that's obviously something that's run a little bit out of control. It was, it was starting to occur yeah. under the Morrison government, but it's continued under the current government. So I'm not being political here. It's just a reality as to what's happened. Um, but, of course, it's occurring at a time when we already had a shortfall. If you look at the vacancy rate in rental property in Australia, it's down about 1.2% or thereabouts, yeah, uh, yeah. 1%, sometimes less in some cities. And so when, when you have people come into those cities, they're obviously looking for somewhere to go. They go into the rental market. They compete with people who are already here. The rents get pushed up. Um, those people who are in the rental market say, well, I don't want to pay 20% rent. I'm trying to save to get into the property market and buy a home. So they're displaced into the property market, and that that has an a, a upwards pressure on, uh, yeah, on home it, prices. It, every, everything seems, right to have a, uh, seems to have a reaction, and I, and I guess that's economics. I mean, we, we uh, it's just like mm. it's just another version of science. You know, every every action has an equal and opposite. Um, can I can I just do I guess with a bit of a hypothetical because right now watching us, uh, countless people who actually will say, what about no immigration? What about none? What about we just stop it? What about we, we make a decision as a country that until we get all these things right and until we don't have people living in tents by the side of the airport or in, the, in, in a park uh, in, in, in Brisbane like we showed earlier, um, what about if we just said none of that? I know politically it would almost be you know, a sensation because no political party has ever said anything like that, but say we did it, what would happen? Well, obviously, we'd start to work through the housing shortfall a Quickly. bit quicker than we are at present. That would yeah. be the simple answer to that. Mm. Um, if you, you stop demand for housing um, or curtail a big chunk of it, then you'd, you'd obviously solve that problem a bit quicker. Um, there is some optimal number here. Um, I think immigration has been a great thing for Australia uh, in terms of resulting in a more dynamic economy, a more diverse economy, and that's been of huge benefit to us over many, many, many years, many decades. So I wouldn't want to stop it and say zero. I think that would probably be to an extreme move. I think just going back to the levels we saw pre-pandemic or maybe a little bit below that. Um, so I, I 
been out there on record saying around 200,000 immigrants, something like that, well down on current levels. Uh, and just until we get this problem under control, then we can review it again and move on. Mm. So it's it's really about balancing things. Yeah, we, we know that immigration but, helps so, Sorry, Australia can I, can I just interrupt ways. you? Because I think this is sort of something I guess we've got to deal with if we want to talk about this zero immigration thing. And I, I, I'm not wanting to drag you into something you don't want to go to, but, but what happens to Australia if we just suddenly say no? If, if, if it's just a decision made by, you know, an elected political force that says we're not going to have any immigration, if, you know, we won't do it. Um, and I know it's almost unbelievable that it would even be said here because it's mm. never been said in our history, but say we did it. Well, yeah. The economy would still survive. It wouldn't be the end of the economy, assuming we would get back to immigration at some point. It would just mean that it would be a slower growing economy. Yeah. So if you look at population growth in Australia in normal years, it's about one and a half percent. Right now it's running at two and a half percent. Natural growth in the in uh, the population is running around something like 0.7 percent. So if you've suddenly halved or more than halved your natural population growth and just relying on natural growth, then your rate of growth in the economy would also slow. Mm. And obviously, some people would like that, other people wouldn't like that. So, I mean, the economy would get by. There's plenty of countries around the world that have zero migration. In fact, their populations are falling. Just look at countries in Europe and Japan and elsewhere. China right now's population is, is uh, I think, peaking out and workforce is falling. So it's something you can manage with. But I think the problem for Australia also in that context would be that we have a shortage of workers at present. And there was an argument that we need to open the doors again coming out of the pandemic mm. to address that shortfall of workers. Yeah. Um, well, I guess again, that was born because people all fled, out. didn't they? They all left and they went somewhere else. But, but if you could keep your people here and you could keep your population and we were breeding at a rate that was was replacement value, um, uh, I, I guess the, the, the summary of this discussion is that, that Australia would survive. Um, we, we would find a way. We've done it uh, and we would find a way. Yeah, look, there's no doubt. Australia would survive. Other countries survive with zero population growth. Um, I, I think it's really a political issue to decide what is the optimal level. And I must admit my own biases here, I've benefited from immigration in terms of my grandparents, uh, my wife's family and so on. Um, yeah. And so I think immigration has been a great thing for Australia. So I'd certainly not be advocating zero. Uh, I think it's really just a matter of finding the right balance here until we get that property issue under control. Yeah, always interesting to talk about it and to you too. And, uh, you know, all power to you. You're out there first and you found it. So good on you, Shane. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you too, Jason. Thanks for having me. That's Shane Oliver from the AMP, uh, the man who, who got us the truth. And, and today it's everyone's truth across Australia. This is The Alan Jones Show. Are you looking for the best books to buy, but can't be bothered searching for them in increasingly woke bookshops? Visit the ADH website, click on the store and check out the latest and some collectible old books by such authors as Brendan O'Neill, Ian Plymer, Jared Henderson, Ian Hancock, and myself, David Flint. These are some of the sharpest writers applying common sense to the great debates of our time, from the gender wars, the attack on religion, and the new racism of the Aboriginal lobby. All the information you need to get through these crazy times at store.adh.org. TV. 
Ever feel like the walls are closing in? We've got wall-to-wall Labour governments across mainland Australia. What can you do about it? Well, you can subscribe to The Spectator Australia right now. Get 10 issues for just $10. We'll keep you sane. We'll keep you right on track. Phone 1-800-809-233. Do it now. Oh, yes. That's more like it. Oh, elbow. Hello world, it's Daisy Cousins here, and I'm pleased to inform you that I am now appearing on ADH-TV every week, twice a week, for your viewing pleasure. So make sure you tune in to my two shows where I am interviewing some of the most interesting people on the planet, as well as covering all the latest in news and current events. Make sure you tune in, I can't wait to see you there. G'day, Damien Curry here. Are you having trouble keeping up with the news and the flood of information coming at us all? Want to understand what's going on clearly and simply without any hidden agenda? Well, great news. The Other Side Australia is back every Friday, now right here on ADH-TV. It's your weekly short circuit summary of the best news commentary from Australia and abroad. And join me for the Other Side interviews on Tuesday nights and on demand right here on ADH-TV. We need someone to send this over to the Labor Party class clown, Chris Bowen, because I'm sure he only has his lawyers watch this program, but he needs to see this. This is important. This is a graph from poll results out today from the very left-leaning Essential Media Group. In case Chris doesn't know of them, they do all the strategy for the union movement and the polling as well. So this one sort of matters if you're a left-leaning politician. Have a look. It asks the question, do you think Australia is doing enough to address climate change? Now, the black line at the top is not doing enough. That's the one that's trending downwards. Note the trajectory. And has been now for quite a while. And at the very same time, the doing enough line, which is the one directly below it, the dark purple line, it just keeps on rising. So not doing enough and doing enough, we're around about the same now. So if I can put that in Chris Bowen simple speak for a second, the game's up, my friend. Stop screwing with our lives with your mindless thought bubbles or do it at your peril. Because I tell you what, people are onto you. And no greater example than in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales and Wollongong, both very traditional Labor Party heartland territory. These pictures we've stolen from the ABC. These are from the weekend. Haven't stolen it, we all own the ABC, we've borrowed it. 
Protests against Chris Bowen's silly as a duck idea to plonk windmills off the coast of these traditional coal mining areas to generate power. So we've got coal there, but we'll use the windmills to generate it. I'm going to hazard a guess that the surfies and the environmentalists aren't all part of some kind of right-wing conspiracy that Bowen seems to blame any opposition to his dopey ideas. He wants Chinese investors to come along and kick in billions of subsidised dollars that we'll all pay for to build huge wind farms off the coast, where that ship is, around about there. And they'll be about as high as the Harbour Bridge, standing there off the coast, spinning, generating power. And of course, the idea is only in its infancy, but it's already pulling major crowds of cranky people all over the place, and not the usual suspects. The game is up, but this thing is almost like a send-up. He's picked areas with great supply of coal. He's shutting down the industry for ideological reasons, destroying jobs, destroying communities, and then wants to vandalise the horizon with the silly idea of putting in wind farms. Talk about adding insult to injury. Chris Bowen, goodness me, some people are as silly as they look. The People's Republic of the ACT, a funny place. A friend who lived there for many years used to call Canberra a toy town. Take this the right way if you're from there. It has its own little government, it has its own police force, it has its own laws, it has its own way of thinking. And if you ever needed proof, you just look at the referendum results from the other day. Everywhere in Australia, resoundingly no. <laughs> but not that little blue speck there in the middle of New South Wales. No, that's the ACT, exact opposite. They went 63% yes. We went 61% no. They used to joke that Canberra had more public servants than it had pigeons. It's the only place in the country where the ABC actually outrates commercial television and God help you if you are a conservative. The ACT's parliament, the assembly, has been run by Labor and the Greens for a generation since 2001. It is considered the most far left, or as they prefer to say progressive, jurisdiction in the country. Always very big on social policy, big ideas to force general societal change. Most of the time, people roll their eyes at some of the silly stuff going on there. And the federal government has once or twice had to override the revolutionaries and a few times kick in and ban some of their laws, like the early form of legalised gay marriage before the country actually had a vote about it. In Canberra, you could get gay married beforehand. But now there is a real test on, a fair dinkum test. Last Saturday, the ACT effectively flipped the switch and decriminalised possession and the sale of drugs. I say effectively, because... Drug users in Canberra now face a $100 fine for possession of the equivalent of up to 15 street deals worth of ice. That's no small amount. Ironically, that fine, $100, is less than you'd get for a parking ticket. It's got to be a joke. In fact, they just put up speeding fines and motoring penalties and fines. And an example used in the papers at the weekend was if you're booked in a school zone doing more than 40 k's an hour, the fine is three times that of being caught with a bag full of smack. It is a weird thing and at times a weird place. Drugs are still illegal because that's federal law. But use of the stuff in the ACT is patrolled and policed by the local administrators 
and you get an administrative policy. Strange days indeed. It's the first time anywhere in the country we've been so relaxed about drug use. And a lot of people are watching this. And I might say not watching for it to fail. They're watching to see if we should be adopting it in other states. Now, I want to go to Brian Carlton. Brian is a friend of mine. I've known him for 30 plus years. He's a broadcaster in Canberra. You'll catch him on Radio 2CC. And we've worked together at 2GB, 2UE. He has a great mind for politics and for the world, but on drug laws, he and I differ profoundly. I thought he'd be quite interesting to talk to about this. So direct from the People's Republic of Canberra, Brian Carlton, g'day. Good to be with you, Jason. Funny little town yours. It's interesting, isn't it? It tends to buck the trend in all sorts of ways compared to the rest of the country. It's a... Um, um, a pleasant enough place to live as long as you're not delving into the politics too much. I was going to ask you that. Now, I always, I, I, you said pleasant. Um, I'll, I'll go a step a bit more the other way and say at times it felt dull when I was in Canberra and lived there. I, I never thought it'd be the place where people would sort of openly celebrate a very relaxed, very liberal kind of drug policy. It doesn't sort of seem in line with the public service nature of the joint. What do I not get? Uh, the nature of the public service, perhaps. Right. Uh, the, the, um, the people who are, tend to be recreational drug users, who, and I use that term in inverted commas, who are being targeted again in inverted commas by these new laws, tend to be more affluent people, people who uh, occasionally go out and indulge in some recreational drug activity rather than the hardcore users. Um, it's it's more aimed, oddly, at public service in a strange <laughs> well, way. Well, so here am I thinking, you know, this is going to become smacky central. Uh, it, it, you actually think it, it, it's probably not. It's probably going to be more in line with the gentrified nature of Canberra. Uh, I think you'll probably find that will be how it plays out over time. It's, it's very early in the process to try and work out exactly what sort of impact these laws are going to have, or the absence of laws, perhaps. But the, the design of the thing is just to try and keep people out of the criminal justice system who are what you might call uh, infrequent users of recreational drugs. Now, whether this is a good idea or not remains to be seen, but I, I have some issues in terms of um, the stimulus it will provide to the black market to supply this perception of a growing market for illicit drugs here in uh, in Canberra. It's a really yeah. strange state of affairs. It, it is, and, and I should point this out. I mean, one of the reasons I found it interesting to speak to you, having known you for as long as I have and listened to you on radio, I know you're not a fiercely no-to-drugs kind of guy. I, I'm, I am, and I've, I've said it unashamedly. I've done it, touched the stuff. I've, I've never done it. Um, uh, whether you want to make any admissions yourself is up to you. But I, I kind of know that you're not someone who just flat out says no to this stuff. You understand it exists and you look for solutions. And, and to hear you with reservations about this makes me just wonder if they have overshot it. Look, I've, I've always been of the opinion that the drug laws, the way we have had them structured up until about 10 years ago, are largely counterproductive. Um, they clag up the criminal justice system. They destroy lives from somebody who might have been out at a party doing something. Here, have some of this or here's a little bag of that to be uh, later busted by the police on the way home. Criminal record, life over. There, there are better ways to do it, I've always thought, and I've argued this for 30-odd years. Is this the best way to do it? 
No, because it doesn't deal with the criminal supply element, and that's the the damaging part of drugs policy to to my way of thinking, apart from the the obvious bad impact it has on people who get caught up badly in it and get a horrible addiction. They definitely need health care rather than um, um, a time in the slammer where they'll probably have access to better quality drugs anyway. So I, I just think we're, we're not tackling the supply arm. All we're doing here is creating a wonderful market opportunity for <laughs> the, uh, the illicit drug trade, which, as you know, Jason, is full of horrible criminal, um, Ferrari-driving people you just wouldn't want (laughs) to know. They're the kind of ones who will see this as a wonderful opportunity to get in and create a brand-new market in what's being pitched as a almost a a travel drug industry. Hey, come to Canberra and enjoy a party weekend in your Airbnb. Um, Will that happen? I think it's already happening. It's happening all over the place. Uh, I think if the, the drug market was um, impacted in any way by the law enforcement, we wouldn't have a drug market. It would have have evaporated. Most drug users don't care about the law, and if they did, they don't use it. So is there a deterrent in that? Perhaps. But most people ignore it. Most people don't think they're going to get busted because most people don't get busted. Yeah, right. Okay, so that's interesting. Your fear out of this is is not so much. I mean, my fear of, of people being able to kind of lawfully use drugs is they're going to jump in the car and drive around off their nut and and prang into the side of me and wipe out my family. That's my fear. Um, I'm yep. sure that's there. That exists at the moment. We've got laws for that. But you sort of got you got a mixed message here, haven't you? You know, uh, don't go and do this and then drive a car, but go and do it, you're, you're fine. You, you, you'll get a fine. Is this right that fines are lower than speeding tickets and parking fines? Fines for using drugs yeah, are abso- lower? Yeah, absolutely, yes. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes. Wow. You, you, don't, you don't even need to pay the fine. So if you are apprehended with a prescri- a less than the prescribed amount, uh, and that varies from 1.5 grams of cocaine to five ecstasy tablets to 1.5 grams of methamphetamine to a gram of heroin. They're the sorts of volumes we're talking about. If you get caught, that'll be confiscated. So you lose your drugs. You then have an option of either um, going to a diversionary course, and if you don't do that, you pay a $100 fine. So, yes, it is less than a speeding ticket. But the logic of, if you can call it that, the logic behind this from the, the Bar Labor Greens government, or let's, let's be right, the Bar Rattenbury Labor Greens government, is um, uh, they genuinely believe that uh, there, there's a, that this will operate in a vacuum uh, separate to the supply issue. All they're worried about is the demand side, if you like, and and the demand is not being um, inhibited in any way. So, look, that that um, is is part of their logic isn't really logical, but I think we need to accept the the reality here that just about all of the. Uh, um, drug busts for personal use that have happened here in the ACT over many, many years have never been prosecuted. So is the situation on the ground likely to change terribly? Probably not. Probably not. I don't want to bore people too much discussion about the inner workings of politics in the ACT because if I can make the point that the, uh, the local government of Liverpool or the Gold Coast is, is, is bigger population than the ACT. However, you've got this weird scenario where you've had Labor and, and now the Greens in power since 2001. Uh, you've got a Liberal Party that seems to think that its solution 
to beat them is to be more like them. And, and so you've yeah. got a really, you know, you've got a hard left government at the moment in Labor of the Greens. You've got a, a soft, uh, quasi-hard left Liberal Party in Canberra wondering why it can't beat them. I, is there any prospect at all ever that we will see the Liberals rule in the ACT and perhaps undo some of this sort of social progressive madness that's going on? The, the Liberals have a stated policy of uh, objecting to these laws and uh, whether they change them if they got back into power is kind of a moot question because I'm not sure whether they understand how to get back into power. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a paralysis around the Liberal Party in terms of how they're positioning themselves here in Canberra. But uh, if I can just say one of the, the political elements of this that disturbs me greatly is that the change of law came about from a private member's bill. So it had in a unicameral parliament where the Greens and Labor have clearly got the numbers, it just sailed through. It never went out to committee. There was no capacity for public feedback in any meaningful way other than after the laws had already passed. Oh, okay. So there's been so, a, a, so, cooling off, a cooling I, off period. I'm sitting here thinking that the leader of the, of the government introduced this law. No, 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 it was just some bozo no, on the back no, bench. No, 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 <laughs> no. This, this came out of a private member's bill from a Labor Party member. Right. And it's pretty clear that there was a stitch-up done ahead of time. But we're going to put this before the, the Assembly, OK? Just everybody go for it, right? We'll, and we'll sneak <laughs> oh, it through. Wow. So it was the... Uh, Jason, the, 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 the biggest concern I have is the abrogation of any democratic process here mm. to enable the people to partake in the democracy we allegedly belong to. And I, I find the, that method... Um, hugely objectionable uh, as a person who values democracy. I, I'm quite happy living in a place where not everything works the way I think it should work if the majority of people, majority of Australians, or in this case, the majority of Canberrans, disagree with me. I'm OK with that. I'm comfortable with that. But I do like the process to be followed. Yeah, funny. And to think that uh, it's, it's Labor, federal Labor's plan to give the ACT more senators... It, it wants to well, it wants to change that and give them more power in the Australia. I and mean, when you look at the the yes no thing, yeah. you know we went sixty one percent no nationally. The ACT went sixty three percent yes. It's it's like parallel universe. And that's I guess why the ACT went first here because. If you think about the demographic breakdown of the ACT, they're more likely to get support from university-educated, um, slightly left-leaning public servants, political staffers, those sorts of people are really the core market, if you like, for this legal change. <laughs> they're the ones that not targeting anymore. <laughs> I'm thinking of you. I said earlier that I thought it's not exactly the place you want to be a conservative in the ACT. So uh, you're, you're broadcasting from the bunker now. I know you've got the musical instruments behind you there, ready to entertain until the dust settles. What if they find out you're not one of them? Will they come after you? Um, I think they already have. Um, I've been, I got hounded out of Tasmania already for that reason. So, um, and that's got a liberal government. So go figure. Look, I uh, I, I have my positions, uh, Jason. As you've known forever, I argue my case. And if people like it, then great. If they don't like it, that's great too. I don't expect everyone to, to buy my take on everything. Uh, but I do like governments to go through some sort of consultative process with the people they are mostly impacting on any major change to legislation. This is a fairly significant um, 
uh, fairly significant development in Australia's drug laws. There's a bit of Greenfield stuff here. We don't quite know how this is going to turn out. Yeah, that's that's why we're talking about it. Uh, great to talk to you and uh, stay safe down there. <laughs> I'll try. I, I wish <laughs> I could get you. <laughs> Play us off to a break. I wish I'd known you had the keyboards behind. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brian and I have worked together for 30 years and I have never known until this moment for you to be, uh, you know, like a quiet rock and roller. I kind of knew you were into it. I just didn't know you were a player. There you go. The things you learn about a man. It's, uh, it's a much better therapy than taking drugs, Jason. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Thanks so much. Good to talk to you. You too. Pleasure. Brian Carlton, live from Canberra, we hope, uh, across Australia. This is The Alan Jones Show. Well, a bit of a musical note to end the program for today. This comes to us from Newcastle. As you know, Paul McCartney touring around Australia. I feel like the only person who hasn't gone to see him. Uh, these little kids, though... They will never forget it. Have a look at this. This comes to us, obviously, filmed by the parents. Little boy, two of them in the crowd, mum, Katie, and other mum, Bindi. They named their kids in honour of the Beatles. So that's little McCartney. And that one with the checkered shirt is little Lennon. And uh, you know who the old bloke is there with the rock and roll hairdo. So have a listen to this. It's quite good. Great photos. What a great moment. <laughs> At the sound check, they will never forget it. Yes, thank you, Paul. <laughs> Brilliant. I went and saw The Cause on Saturday night. Uh, you know, the, uh, the beautiful Irish ladies and the brother. Um, I would have liked to have been called up on stage just for the sound check. Say hi. How are you? I can't believe Andrea Kaur is 49 now. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But she was a kid when she started off on stage and now they are a nostalgia act and they are brilliant. Not quite the Beatles, but maybe one day. Hey, thank you for your company. That's the Alan Jones program for today. Uh, you can catch the program here on podcast tomorrow in all the usual places you get it. And do keep your comments coming. Really interested to know what you think of the program, the issues we cover. And I can assure you of this, Alan Jones is back with you in a week's time. In fact, I was hopeful to talk to him about rugby, but he's having too good a time to bother talking to me about rugby, and I know zilch about it, so I'm not even going to put a full review about it. Thank you for your company. Jason Morris, that's my name. Catch you tomorrow. <laughs>